Good morning. We're in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 21. Because it begins with some pronouns, I'm going to just remind us of the verse before in which um, Paul says that by any means possible, he may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, City Church. It's great to be with you. I'm going to pray a prayer of a Puritan named Richard Aleen. I'm going to pray this prayer as we start, and then we will get into our text this morning. It's good to be with you. Here's the prayer. Now speak, Lord, and I will hear. Now call, Lord, and I will answer. Now command me. Impose on me what you will, and I will submit. None but the Lord, none but Christ, no other Lord nor lover. I am yours, Lord, your own. Do with your own, demand of your own, whatever you please. What you will have me be, Lord, what you will have me do, this is what I will do and be. No longer what I will, but your will be done. Amen. I don't know if you've noticed this. I actually just read about this uh, a few weeks ago. I never paid attention to this, but on most menus, uh, there are no dollar signs on the prices. Is this something that you, you guys have known? I, I did not know about this until this week, or I have really even paid attention. But uh, when you, uh, next time you go to a restaurant, if you look at the menu, you will likely see there are no dollar signs on the prices. And the, and the reason that there are no dollar signs on the prices is that they have discovered, uh, whoever they is, uh, has discovered that people are wi willing to spend more money on food if they don't see the dollar sign. Um, it's, it's interesting psychology. It's an interesting mind trick, if you will. Uh, but the, the text that we have this morning uh, basically is the dollar sign on the price. Uh, there are many times uh, often that we read scripture and we read a passage like we have this morning and we're called to the greater understanding that, uh, that this Christian life is not for the faint of heart. 
Uh, in fact, uh, Paul is using the analogy here of running a race, which takes effort, uh, which takes work. And so the, the Bible really isn't interested, interested in mind games like not putting the dollar sign on a price. This is the dollar sign on the price. This is the cost, truly the cost of following after Christ. Now, technology, of course, has, has fooled us. In many ways, it's fooled us into thinking that there's an easy button for everything. That's what we are, uh, by nature, looking for in life, is the easy way, is the shortcut, is the quick fix. And our culture just encourages that all the more. And, and, and living in a culture that encourages quick fixes or shortcuts or a culture that doesn't put a dollar sign on the price, on the menu, we can be frustrated. We can be frustrated in a, in a text that we see this morning that calls for us to strain, strain for something, to press on. Now, maturing in Christ, growing in our Christ-likeness is harder than we thought because sin is stubborn. Sin is stubborn. It doesn't quickly go away. We're constantly tempted to take our eyes off of Christ and what lies ahead. That is our, our temptation at all times. But we need to be honest with ourselves because God is honest with us. The Christian life, again, is not for the faint of heart. Now, last week, Paul reminded the Philippians that their confidence is in Christ. We talked about that, meaningful confidence in Christ. It's found in Christ, and it grows through knowing Christ. This is what we said last week, that as we mature as believers, it comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Knowing him in his death, knowing him in his resurrection. And this week, Paul is showing that a life worthy of the gospel, which is what we've titled this series in Philippians, a life worthy of the gospel has a direction to it. It has a direction. It's moving toward a goal. And so you might say it's meaningful direction toward fully knowing Jesus Christ and being perfected in a heavenly resurrection. That's where we're going, to know fully Jesus Christ and to be perfected in a heavenly resurrection. So, that means there are only two directions. There are only two directions in life. The meaningful direction toward God and heaven and the meaningless direction toward idolatry and destruction. So whether you knew it or not, when you came into the room this morning, you are headed in one of those two directions. You're headed one way or the other. And so here is what I want to lay before us this morning as our main idea in this passage. Again, if you're taking notes, this is the main idea. Because we are Christ's, we head in a direction that is hard work, is harrowing, and heavenward. We head in a direction that is hard work, harrowing, and heavenward. First of all, let's begin with hard work. Meaningful direction is hard work. And we see that again in verses 12 through 14 that Kate just read for us. Again, we're looking at words uh, that, are, that are active words. Press on. You see the straining forward. And again, he says press on toward the goal. These are, these are not lullaby words. These are not lying a hammock words. These, these are active words. Paul is running hard. 
Again, he's using the metaphor of running a race. He's used this metaphor before. In fact, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says this, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul is running in the direction toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of Christ. And it's purposeful. It's purposeful and disciplined. You see the word prize here in this passage and the, and the word prize that I just read out of 1 Corinthians, both the same word which refers to a, a, a wreath or a prize that an athlete would win at the end of a public race or public games. And this prize is with Christ in heaven. Paul has already said that uh, the faith he receives in Christ allows him to know Christ in the resurrection today. So we do live, as we talked about last week, we do live resurrected lives today. But to be perfected fully in Christ is to run and finish the race. To be perfected fully in Christ is to run and finish the race. The hard work will be rewarded on that day when we arrive and rest, but until then, we are on the move. And in many ways, Paul was wanting the Philippians to avoid what is called a over-realized eschatology. There's our fancy phrase of the morning, over-realized eschatology. And, and what in the world do I mean by that? It's basically a fancy phrase that means that we are tending to pull too much from what heaven will be into today. An over-realized eschatology is taking what will be true of us when we see Christ in heaven and trying to pull that into the present moment. We do live in the already, but not yet. You might have heard that before. So we are already experiencing parts of God's kingdom today, but we are not experiencing it fully like we will be in heaven. And this is why Paul has said, and as Kate pointed out, that he has not already obtained this. What he means is that he has not already obtained the fullness of the resurrection, the fullness of knowing Christ. And so, because that is true, he presses on in the right direction. Paul presses on in the right direction. We are called to press in that direction as well. I mentioned this name a few weeks ago in one of the sermons, uh, David Pallison. A lot of you may know that name, David Pallison. Uh, he's no longer with us, but he is a gifted biblical counselor. If you're interested in biblical counseling, I cannot recommend David Pallison enough. And he wrote a book called Making All Things New. He wrote several books, uh, but this one in particular uh, is really, really good in, in talking about spiritual renewal in Christ, specifically for the sexually broken. But he makes a broader application by saying this, sanctification... And again, what do we mean by sanctification, but growing more and more into Christ's likeness? Sanctification is a direction. I love that. That's what he says. Sanctification is a direction. And listen to what he says about this direction, about the process of sanctification. He says, we are, each and all, on a trajectory from what we are to what we will be. 
the moral absolutes rightly orient us on the, on the road map. But the process heads out on the actual long, long journey in the right direction. The key to getting a long view of sanctification is to understand direction. What matters most is not the distance that you've covered. It's not the speed that you're going. It's not how long you've been a Christian. It's the direction you're heading. Now, the danger in, in preaching a text like we're preaching, like I'm preaching this morning, that we're in this morning, is that we hear about uh, heading in a direction being hard work, and we uh, might be tempted to think this is about earning something. We talked a lot about that last week, that we do not earn our righteousness, we do not earn our right standing before God, and we could read a passage like this that calls us to do something, and we might think, earn. And I promise you that's not what's going on this morning. We cannot earn salvation by our own efforts. We've heard this already in the book of Philippians, that Paul said that we work out our own salvation, but we only do that because it's God working in us. God the Spirit empowers us to put forth the effort to run the race. But not only that, friends, not only does he empower us to run the race, he gives us much, much grace. He gives us grace. He gives us grace when we've not covered as much ground as we would have liked. He gives us grace if we are not sprinting toward the finish line, but we're in a slow jog. He gives us grace if we're not in a slow jog, but we're walking. He gives us grace even if we are just facing the right direction, but standing still. He gives us grace. Early in our marriage, I was uh, in a really terrible place with ongoing uh, wrestle with sexual sin. Uh, it, was a, it was a horrible season for Molly and me in that time period. Uh, you know, when you first get married, it's hard enough, but what I brought into our marriage was incredibly painful. And I was in a place where I desperately wanted to break free from my sin. I, I wanted that, but I kept choosing my sin. It was, it, it was hard. It was a wrestle. And I'll never forget that one day, after reaching somewhat of a tipping point, I, I called my counselor that I was seeing at the time, and I, I was in tears, and I said on the phone, please do not give up on me. Please do not give up on me. And he said, Christ hasn't given up on you, and neither will I. Christ hasn't given up on you, and neither will I. And so what proceeded over the next several months and years was a messy and hard slog, but in the right direction. Believer in Christ, we need to be reminded of his power and grace in our lives. Because we are all in the middle of the race. We are all in the middle of the race. And so will you rest in the grace and mercy of Christ being reminded once again that he who began a good work in you, he who set your feet in the right direction in this race, he will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. He will. If you are truly his, you will finish this race. You will. But today you're in the middle of the race. This is the middle of the race, and so the question is, how are you this morning? We're in the middle of the race, 
Would you say that you're experiencing that runner's high this morning? I pray that's true. Some of you might have come in sprinting toward the finish line of Jesus Christ. But some of you might just be sitting down. You're facing the right direction, but you might just be looking ahead and not moving. Jesus loves the sprinter and the sitter the same. And here's the encouragement this morning. You will finish the race. In Christ, you will finish this race. Now in verse 13, Paul says something that maybe you're familiar with. Again, we've talked about so often how Philippians has these memorable verses or, or uh, passages. And this is another one where Paul says, forget what lies behind. Strain forward, press on, and the one thing I do is I forget what lies behind. Uh, my son Owen just wrapped up flag football season. Uh, had a great time. Uh, one of the things the coaches tells the boys all the time, you probably know this, is once you catch the ball, if you catch the ball, don't run looking behind you seeing if the guy is trying to pull your flag. In fact, uh, one of the kids on Owen's team this last week caught the ball, great pass, right to him. He was running toward the end zone, but the whole time he was looking behind him as he was running, and he didn't make it to the end zone because the guy was right there pulling his flag. You're faster you're more efficient if you are looking ahead, if your eyes are ahead. And so whatever is behind us that prevents us from running this race well, we should forget. That's what Paul is saying. Now, what are those things? What are the things that we should forget? I think in this context, what Paul is talking about are both his past glories and his past sins. I think it's both. Clearly, he doesn't literally forget them. He doesn't literally forget them. We just saw last week he was able to recall perfectly all the things that he was before Christ. So it's not as if they have completely emptied from his mind. But what he is choosing to do is not let the things behind him distract him. He doesn't dwell on his failures either before or after he's become a believer. He doesn't let past mountaintop experiences cause him to despair the valleys of today. He forgets what lies behind. Some of us need to pray for more forgetfulness. Is that something that you pray for? It's not something I typically pray for, but maybe we should pray for more forgetfulness. Because when God calls his people to go out forward, it never goes well with them when they try to take a peek behind them. Ever thought about that? Have you even think about that when you read the scriptures? I mean, Jesus says this in Luke 9, verse 62. He says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is, explains also the fate of Lot's wife. If you've read Genesis, what happens to Lot's wife? As she looks back at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, as she looks back, she turns into a pillar of salt. Whatever lies behind is part of your story. It is. Whatever's in the rearview mirror is part of your story. But the plot line keeps moving in your story. Good stories move along. Right? They may slow down in parts. They may even have a couple of flashback scenes occasionally, but a good plot takes us somewhere new. And this is what Paul is encouraging the Philippians. There may be a lot of things in the rearview mirror but we're running a race. 
Whatever that is, don't let it hinder you from running this race. Now, forgetting doesn't mean pretending that something never happened. There's a difference there. But what it does do, it removes the power from whatever it is to be able to affect you today. I know some of us have had really hard pasts. Some of your stories that I've had the privilege and honor of hearing, some of you have been through some really, really hard things in your past. And so I want to honor you by saying that being able to forget your past in a way that frees you today is not easy. I don't want to sugarcoat this. This isn't a snap of the finger and just pretend that everything behind you is gone. There is much grace. Forgetting what lies behind might take a long time. It might take a long time to reconcile all that's happened in your life. But here's what I want to encourage you with today. No matter what is in the rearview mirror, it does not define who you are and it does not determine who you are destined to be. I want to say that again. No matter what is in the rear view mirror, it does not define who you are today or determine who you are destined to be. That is the power of the gospel and of the resurrection and of new life in Christ that you can rest in his grace. Because we are Christ, we head in a direction that is hard work. That was the first point. The second is heading in a direction that is the right direction is harrowing. It's harrowing, meaning it's fraught with danger and temptation. Look at verse 17 with me. Paul moves on to this topic of, of what it is to follow a worthy example of someone in the faith. Someone who's worthy of imitation. So he says right there, brothers, join in me, join in, in tim- uh, imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So as we run the race, we keep our eyes on what lies ahead. And we also keep our eyes on brothers and sisters that are worthy to imitate. Maybe some of them are a little bit ahead of us on this race. That we're able to examine their life and imitate there are at least a few others. He said, uh, let, uh, let, let us be an example to you, an example you have in us. So it's more than just Paul. Probably Timothy and Epaphroditus, like we saw a few weeks ago, are worthy examples of the Philippians to follow after. There's at least a few people in their lives that are setting the pattern of Jesus Christ in the way that they live, in humility or self-denial, servanthood, or the other's orientation, being God-glorifying saints. And God has given uh, this church these good gifts. City Church has such brothers and sisters, such faithful men and women who are running the race, who are living their lives in such a way that they're open to observation, they're transparent, we're able to observe them. That's a sweet thing. What a sweet thing to be able to observe this in the life of another brother and sister and say, that's someone that I want to imitate. But what we do see, that what comes after this, is the consequences of setting our eyes or our minds on things or philosophies that are not of the Lord. That's basically what he's saying in verses 18 and 19. 
This is why meaningful direction is harrowing. It's dangerous. A couple of quick observations in these two verses. Paul apparently has frequently talked about those who are now enemies of the cross of Christ. Those who now walk opposed to the cross. He says that he has told them often. And he also tells them with tears. He's warning them through tears. Essentially, here is the warning. The warning that Paul is given the Philippians here is, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. What you set your mind on, what you give yourself over to, shapes your identity. In chapter 4, Paul is going to talk a whole lot more about the importance of what we think about. Uh, In other places in the New Testament and other letters that he has written, he talks about setting our minds on Christ, setting our minds on things that are above, setting our minds on the things of the Spirit because we will be more conformed into the image of Christ as we do so. But who are these? Who are these that he is talking about that have set their minds on earthly things? Do you see that? At the end of verse 19, these are those who have set their minds on earthly things. It seems very likely that these are people who were likely in the church at some point who have professed faith, but their lifestyle now betrays the authenticity of that profession. They've likely gotten swept up in the pagan culture that was surrounding all along along in the city of Philippi. This is a Roman colony. There's a lot of things that the culture was tempting them to do, I'm guessing that at this point, it's, uh, we're almost at the end of 2022, and as we live in the culture that we have today, I'm sure that at least one person can come to your mind who has at one point professed Christ, but has walked away from orthodox Christian beliefs. I think we all know at least one person, maybe a family member, maybe a friend. Some of them may have rejected Jesus and the cross outright. Maybe they've deconstructed their understanding of faith altogether and left the church. They might be pursuing a sexually permissible lifestyle that embraces homosexuality or gender fluidity. They may have taken up the mantle of modern feminism as the best path for human flourishing. There are also many who reject the gospel with their lifestyle, but with their words still claim to follow Jesus. This happens when a church walks away from truth and reframes Christianity into a means for personal happiness, but on one's own terms. Then, traditional Christianity becomes something to reject because it's a threat to living true to yourself or to those you love. The question is, why does this happen? Notice that Paul says that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Why the cross? Among other amazing things, the cross is the ultimate emblem of suffering and self-denial. Of all the things we can say about the cross of Christ, it is the emblem of suffering and self-denial. So those who create their own identities in the image of the world make their belly a god or themselves a god and glory in anything their sinful hearts desire. This is a world where even unwanted desires are recreated into an identity to embrace. And then it sets itself up against the cross of Christ 
where we are actually called to deny ourselves. In short, they have thrown out a right theology of suffering. Believers, we are told over and over again that we will suffer. We will suffer not as enemies of the cross, but as enemies of the world, our own flesh, and of the devil. Bellies will always want to be God. The shameful things of the world are glorified all around us. But the triune God is our God, and he is our glory, and we put to death the deeds of the flesh. We set our minds on him. We pick up our cross to follow our king. This is why part of our mission statement here at City Church is that we trust God's word to make and grow disciples of Jesus Christ in truth, hope, and steadfastness. Truth, hope, and steadfastness. Meaningful direction is harrowing, so we have to be anchored in Christ. We have to be anchored in Him as we pursue Him. And we do that through reading our Bibles, by participating in discipleship groups, by attending the weekly gathering like we are this morning, by sitting under the authority of God's Word. Now, this is important. This is really, really important. How, how do we respond when those we know and love begin to walk in the wrong direction? How do we respond? When they head in a meaningless direction away from Christ, what, what do we do? Well, I would suggest that we take a cue from our brother Paul here, who mourns it through tears. Do you see that? We mourn through tears. We mourn it through tears as we encourage each other to keep running the race. Keep running the race. And I'm warning you about these who we once knew and loved who are not running the race. And we're heartbroken. We mourn it through tears. We encourage one another to keep running the race. And we speak truth in love. We speak truth in love. D.A. Carson is a fantastic theologian and professor and pastor. He, he has this quote that I ran across this week. He says, for our part, talking about believers, we must not become people who denounce but who do not weep. Neither may we become people who weep but who never denounce. Too much is at stake both ways. We need to carve out a category where there can be an incredible love and honesty coexisting with one another. There really is a space that we can say with all grace, I love you, but you're on the wrong path. There's a place for that. Do you believe that this morning? I love you, but you're on the wrong path. You need to be willing to say hard things, but in a gentle way, and be long-suffering to pray and plead for friends and family that walk as pleasers of self. And we do that all the while knowing that our citizenship is in heaven. So as we close, let's get to our third point this morning, which is that we are headed, believers, we are headed in a heavenward direction. Let's read verses 20 and 21 again. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So we live here. Here we are. This is real. Like you're sitting there. You actually are sitting there. I'm standing here. This is real. But this is not our permanent address. We're running in a direction that's toward our permanent address, which is in heaven. Toward our Savior, toward the Lord Jesus Christ, who will meet us at the finish line. And when he meets us at the finish line, he will transform our lowly bodies into fully perfected and mature, glorious bodies like his. So we live as citizens of heaven today. As we've talked about so often, this is our reality today. We live as kingdom of heaven citizens. The kingdom has broken through. We live lives worthy of the gospel, but we are living those lives today in the midst of suffering and persecution that this world gives us. We, but we hope, we hope so much more for what is to come. For what is to come. Some, some have said this, maybe you've heard this before, that to be heavenly minded is to be of no earthly good. Have you ever heard that? If you think too much about heaven, you're not going to be any good here on earth. But I don't get the sense that Paul thinks that way, do you? I don't think so. He, this is the third time in this letter alone that he has brought the Philippians back to the, resurrected, the resurrection and the exalted Christ. Seems like that's pretty, pretty much a big deal. That he keeps bringing this up over and over again. And why? It's our ultimate hope. We weren't made for this world. We're headed to something far more glorious and better. We will be with him. We will be with him. We will be like him. And we will be like him by the power of his lordship and kingship. The end of this race where sin clings so closely is the start of a glorious, joyous, never-ending Sabbath rest as we worship our king in his presence. That's where we're headed All things subject to King Jesus. The author of Hebrews says that we do not see everything in subjection to him today. That means that things are not quite yet as they will be. So we don't see all things as they will be on that day, but we do see Jesus. We do see Jesus. He's the founder of our salvation. He's come He's come as a man to be perfected in his suffering. And now he's called us to do the same. Jesus became a man to run a race. He isn't calling us to do anything he hasn't already done. Jesus ran a race all the way to the cross. He did so with the certainty of joy in bringing us with him to glory. In his earthly life, he never veered from the meaningful direction toward God the Father. It was hard work. It was harrowing. He was tempted and tried and hated and killed. But the cross was the finish line, friends. The cross was the finish line. It was his victory, and now it is ours in Christ. The cross is our victory. The cross is where... The bellies that were God's 
The cross is where those of us who gloried in our shame, those of us whose minds were set in the wrong direction, were reconciled to God. The cross is where we were reconciled to God and whose feet, our feet, have now been set in the right direction on a path back to him. This is our reality. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are overwhelmed with gratitude that this is the work that you have done by sending your son to live a life that we could never live, perfectly obedient in all ways. And so, in our gratitude this morning, we ask you to help us. Help us to see that reality. Help us to set our minds on you. Help us to keep our eyes to what lies ahead, knowing that you have given us the power and the ability and the grace to strain forward, to press on, to have our minds set on that upward call and the prize that is in heaven with Christ Jesus. And we know that, we, that if we are yours, if we belong to you, that we will finish this race. So thank you that we will see you with our own eyes, that we will be like you, that you will transform our lowly bodies into glorious bodies as we rule and reign with you in a new heaven, a new earth. And we pray and we plead for those who have put their minds on earthly things, that have taken their minds away from the truth of your gospel and of your good word. We pray and plead that you would set their, pe- their feet on the right path, on the path in you, toward you, on the race that gets us to you. Where we are tempted and tried in every way, will you help us to fix our mind on what is ahead, forgetting what lies behind. And give us much grace to do so. And we love you, and it's in Christ we pray. Amen.